0: blog talk radio Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia, improv for peace, and conflict resolution. You can also leave comments on blocktalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit utopia. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. And in order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account. You'll find a link to open the account on the page right under the chat room. And in fact, I, I believe um, they have updated such that you don't even have to open the account. You can just click on and log in, if I'm not mistaken. But if you have any questions, you can email me at Valerie F. Leonard at nonprofitutopia.com. I won't obviously be able to respond to email while we're on air, but I will get back to you just as soon as I can. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. And if you just happen to be logged into blogtalkradio.com, you will see that number on the top left side of your screen. So we encourage you to follow up and sign up for our mailing list. Just to keep abreast of what's going on with the community, we've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section. And you should see that again um, on the front page underneath the chat room. So have you ever experienced deep conflict or trauma and wished you could rewrite a chapter in your life? How about for the community or for your organization? In Prawl for Peace, helped organizations, communities, and professionals actively resolve miscommunication by facilitating guided improvisations workshops to help participants rescript their past and provide opportunities for participatory community reconciliation. Founder Andrea C. Hummel will talk about the healing power of improv and the lessons she's learned on her journey helping organizations and municipalities resolve conflict. Andrea C. Hummel is trained in multicultural diversity, mediation, and trauma recovery. She holds a master's in applied anthropology from American University in Washington, D.C., with postgraduate studies in intercultural conflict mediation at the Intercultural Communication Institute. In Portland, Oregon. She's trained in world work with Annie Mendel, shadow work with Cliff Berry, and multi track diplomacy. She also holds a theory certification in TSM psychodrama for post traumatic growth and has presented at conferences both in the United States and abroad. In 1991, Andrea founded a consulting firm specializing in cultural diversity, provided trainings, cultural needs assessments, and human relations consulting, and was an adjunct faculty member at University of Florida and Manatee Community College. Initially, her focus was on preventing conflict. Now it's on resolving conflict, and she uses improvisations to do this, she is the developer of the cutting-edge I4P Improv for Peace method for helping individuals and communities increase empathy, decrease miscommunication, and create alternate endings to historical conflict. No stranger to staying focused during crisis, she was in the Middle East during the 1990 Kuwaiti oil crisis, Guatemala during the 1995 refugee persecutions and in Greece during the 2015 refugee crisis. So clearly she can draw from many, many experiences to help us apply these lessons learned to our own organizations, to our communities, to the country in general, and we are looking forward to a wonderful, wonderful conversation. So, thanks so much for being with us today, Andrea. Your background is absolutely remarkable. How did you get started in this line of work?
1: Well, Valerie, um, part of it comes from growing bicultural. And a lot of times people think bicultural culture in this country means uh, Latino American, and actually I grew up German American. Um, and so I never quite fit in. I grew up in a small town in Florida, and I uh, always thought people around me uh, were different than I was, and I just wasn't one of them. And so I became mm-hmm. interested in why that was, and so I studied anthropology to kind of get an idea of how people think differently. How their behaviors are generally, how their viewpoints, how they even think about life is very different and it, it just helped me understand myself better um in addition yeah. to that i I also credit my grandfather with uh with sort of influencing me uh because he did a lot of activism during World War two and um so sometimes I feel like I have to follow up and continue what he started.
0: My goodness, that is so exciting! You know, you and I have only talked a couple times, and I tell you, every time we do talk, or every time I read something, I hear something different and interesting, and uh, you know, none of which we're prepared to talk about. So I will try. To, <laughs> I will try to stay on track. But you know, when when you told me that you're German American, and And you you spoke to differences, and and it's interesting, you know, I'm black, African American, and we tend to, and maybe I shouldn't just say we, because, you know, we're not necessarily a monolithic people, but, you know, we tend to say, well, white people, white Europeans tend to all think alike. You, You know what I mean? Just like, you know, the perception is we tend to have the same experiences as black people, and we tend to all think alike and have the same viewpoint. So I thought it was really intriguing that you felt so out of place here. Yeah, even though you're you know, you're you're a descendant of, you know, Europeans. So so that's I guess another conversation.
1: But I mean, that that brings up an interesting point there that uh, that skin color isn't really, doesn't dictate what goes on inside your head. And um, I have two really interesting examples that speak to that. Um, One is, is something I had mentioned to you earlier today which is I'm married to a Cuban-American. And um, so when I started out working, I would I would go with my Latino last name. And it was quite a shock for people when I would show up and, and I didn't look Latino and I didn't speak Spanish the way they did. And, and they would think, well, what does she know about cultural diversity? Um, and uh, I have the second example to have a daughter who um, – Obviously, also had a Latino last name then, and she recently decided to change her name to a less Latino one because she didn't want to be stereotyped either. So, um, I I think that's a follow up to what you were saying that I was thinking that just because you have a certain skin color means you're all alike. Um, And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that I see as a real problem in this country that we make snap judgments of each other and it doesn't necessarily
0: work well for us. Mhm. So, so you're um, trained to actually Mhm.
1: So that's why I got into this line of work and um and wanted to help other people avoid some of the same pitfalls that I've encountered in terms of making snap judgments about each other. Um, because you know, culture is so much more than than just knowing the holidays of somebody or knowing a few keywords in their language. It's really it, much mm-hmm. deeper differences like how do you treat someone, uh, how do you treat a woman differently than a man in certain cultures, mm-hmm. or um, is family more important than workplace? For example, if you get a phone call at work, um, if you're, and I'm speaking stereotypes here, but just as an example, if you're a Latino, you would probably be more comfortable taking a family related phone call at work than if you were an Anglo because, you know, family is more important. And I totally understand that because to me, family is very important too. Um, but to, let's say, a, a, a very powerful, Um, executive, that's going to be something that you don't want to be doing. And so uh, someone could get uh, reprimanded for doing something that's Mm -hmm. not part of the dominant culture in that particular place. And uh, so, I mean, as we're talking about culture, I do have to include in there work culture or organizational culture because every organization will have its own set of expectations and um mission statement and the way things are done, and uh, so mm-hmm. that's very different than the culture of the people who are actually working there.
0: Mhm okay, great. Um, so you're trained to resolve conflict resol- uh, resolve conflict, and you use a number of different approaches, and one of them is world work. Do you share an overview of world work? Yes, world work
1: is uh, created for group processes for larger groups, um, and that contrasts with with another method I was trained in. But world work is, is for helping groups resolve conflict. Um, and one of the ways that's done is by deliberately creating a bit of discomfort um, among the participants, so that it opens them up and they can then um, be more receptive to looking at themselves. Um, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. something I do in my work these days, make people uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> because it just doesn't fit with how I am. But what I took from the world workplace was being able to work with a big group rather than just a few individuals, as well as not being afraid of the feelings that come up for participants because a lot of times in other types of workshops and facilitations um, that we do, we want to keep the status quo, in other words, the facilitator at the front of the room and the participants have to be at the back of the room um, corralled off. And world work and a lot of the, the experiential methods that I use are just the opposite of that. You want to get people involved. You want to then to be the focus of what's going on in the room. You want them to be having the experience mm-hmm. and, and uh, it, facilitating their own process. So that's what I picked up from world work. Awesome. And So, mm-hmm. so uh, the other method I was trained in that's, that's kind of the opposite of that is the shadow work, and that mm-hmm. starts out focused just on individuals. So what we do in shadow work is we look at your individual personality and we look at those kinds of things that we tend to suppress, that we tend to think are not um, socially acceptable, certain sides of ourselves. Um, Probably about 20 years ago, um, the 360-degree personality assessment became very popular. So shadow Mm -hmm. work is related to that in the sense that um, it helps you look at your whole personality, including those pieces of yourself that you put into shadow. And so by definition, if you suppress a certain side of yourself, such as anger or your fear or um, your willingness to shine and in the spotlight, then that mm-hmm. just comes up sideways in one of our other interactions. And so it's counterproductive actually to to be suppressed in parts <laughs> of themselves. And the same is it's
0: true for organizations
1: as well as for individuals.
0: Oh, now that, That's interesting. You know, when you talk about the shadows, you know, sometimes we might suppress certain instincts, you know, um, I guess instincts to be in the limelight. I, I think about cultural differences. Maybe culture is not the... Right word maybe behavioral differences between men and women and again I guess this is a, a stereotype you know have you found in your work that men are more likely to jump for the the limelight than women and and that could be problematic sometimes
1: yeah I mean you know stereotype I'm sorry uh, shadows differ between genders to some degree, but they also differ between cultures. Um, so if you think, mm-hmm. let's just take a radical example. So, uh, you know, Americans, uh, our culture was founded on um, it, it, keeping our sensuality inside. And you look at um, Italians and French who are very open about just their love of of nature and beauty, and being able to be fully themselves in that ma- in that way. So, you can say that there's differences right there between those two cultures and how they express that side of themselves. Um, and if you look at gender differences, well, you know, it's okay for a woman to cry, um, but how many mm-hmm. times have you heard a little boy told, Don't cry, be a strong man? Um, <laughs> so, right, so right. just by saying things like that, uh, you know, where we're taught to suppress that, or boys are taught to suppress that. Um, and for women, we're taught to suppress our anger. I was reading something just a few days ago, um, you know, the upcoming presidential debates. We had. There's been some retrospective about the the debates back in 2016. And um, there was one piece I read about Hillary Clinton um, feeling like she had to just hold herself back in some of the interactions with the person she was debating, Mm -hmm. meaning Trump. And um, so the commentator in that article noted that if she had been a man, she wouldn't have felt the need to suppress that. Um, So Mm -hmm. there's another example of gender differences right there.
0: And, and you know, it's interesting, too, that you would say that. um, I think, too, along racial lines, there are differences. You know, when Obama was running, he had to really control his temperament. Um, He didn't want to be perceived necessarily as this angry black man, you know, that, you know, America hates so much. So he had to be extremely measured. So I, I think that's really interesting that you would bring that up. And then I'm just wondering how these stereotypes and communication styles can impact our organizations and, and maybe some of the work you might do to you know to help you know help organizations move forward, you know, recognizing and celebrating our, our differences.
1: Right. So if we talk about organizations, I mean there's two different conversations we could have there. We could talk about the the dynamic inside the organization among the employees or how that organization impacts the rest of society. In other words, how it's able to perform its work that uh, mm. that it was created to to do. Uh, so I'm working with an organization at the moment that has difficulty internally, the communication among individuals, and um, mm-hmm. so there there needs to be people need to be aware of what their beliefs are. Um, and now I'm not even talking about cultural beliefs so much, it's just what their, what their worldview is looking at uh, their environment, their work environment, um, and things mm-hmm. like uh, uh, hierarchy within the organization, how you treat someone who's um, under you versus above you. Um, and mm-hmm. this particular organization, however, also has – um, a certain way that it interacts with the larger community. It's, it's part of a municipality, and so mm-hmm. there's. There could be if it shows there could be some work also um, around how they're perceived by the community, and whether they want mm-hmm. to change that. Uh, at this point, like I said, I'm just working with the internal part of that organization.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That is very, very interesting. And, and then I guess when we look at communities, you know, and, and our approaches to, you know, say community projects or just living peacefully, you know, what have you found to be some of the issues around shadows in, in the communities? Well, um,
1: if a community puts parts of itself in shadow, um, then they, like I said, they it, it would be suppressed and it then needs to come out in a different way. And one of the things I found is, and American society specifically, is that uh, since we have, I started out doing cultural diversity training, and um, and mm-hmm. then saw that a lot of it was moving in the direction of. Um, instead of really being understanding the other, it became all about using politically correct language. And wow. So what I yeah, I saw that that politically correct language was just kind of whitewashing things, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> just covering up, <laughs> covering up some of the true differences. And so I think it's extremely important to look below the surface at those differences. But anyway, so what started happening decades after this politically correct language without the missing piece of actually working with the differences was we suppressed so many social conversations that we needed to have as a society. And so my opinion is that that's one of the reasons that we had to had to energetically um, <laughs> elect a leader for our country who was a complete opposite who was able to bring those conversations to the surface um, to be mm-hmm. able to kind of blow open the the can in which we had as a society stuffed <laughs> all those conversations um, and so now we're having a lot of those conversations that we should have had all along. Um, in my opinion, happening a little more violently and um, (laughs) really not in a way that I'm comfortable with. Um, But we've seen the same thing happen in other countries too. If you look at other countries around the world at the moment, um, those leaders are the same. They are also just wanted to blow the lid off so that we can have some of those, those social reparative experiences that we should have been working on for decades. And so um, that's an example there of, of what happens in communities and in
0: countries when we put parts of ourselves in shadow. And that's interesting, too. I, I remember you're saying that, um, you know, one of the lessons you've learned is people want to be heard. And if people are not heard, you know, that causes conflict, And depending on, you know, how much they suppress Those feelings and how pent up they could be They could actually resort, you know, to violence And, you know, that's what I'm concerned about um, As I hear you speak You know, the differences You know, our country is so divided now And people, I think, are really on edge And some of these political conversations Could really play themselves out in, in very violent ways
1: Absolutely, and that's, that's certainly a fear. And um, to use the, the metaphor of pressure again, if we suppress certain things, if we, if we don't have those conversations that do need to happen, it's going to blow up. And so what I would really like to see as a solution is to kind of open the pressure valve a little bit and have those conversations at least trickle out a little bit to relieve the pressure and what do I mean by letting things trickle up? Um, it's really <laughs> us needing to be proactive in, in having those conversations and not waiting until we in Charlottesville or Las Vegas or in Orlando um, with violence, but actually being proactive and saying, we are now as a community going to get together and create an event for a reason to bring people from different backgrounds together. And yeah, there's gonna be some of us who are going to be afraid to stand next to someone who looks different, someone who wears different clothes, wears head covering, but we need to get over that and we really need to take those first steps to having those conversations and being able to talk to someone different from ourselves. Um, there's a lot of smaller efforts like that uh, going on around the world any, in any country. But one of my favorite examples is of two cultures who have been very much at odds for a number of years, obviously, and the Palestinians and Israelis is who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone years ago started a knitting group for Palestinian and Israeli women. And so they would mm-hmm. just get together, and they would over something completely innocuous, handiwork, knitting, sewing, get to know each other and talk about their kids, talk about their sons that had gone off to war, talk about the commonalities they had. And that was an interesting first Mm -hmm. step to being able to have those conversations. So I'm hoping that we can do more of that in this country to be able to, Mm -hmm. to start having those conversations and reaching out and being the first one to say, I'm going to take that step to get to know someone who's different from me and I'm afraid you bet that I'm going to do it anyway. Of course, that's easier said than done. But you have to start with with the big picture of what we would like to see in this country.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. I want to remind you that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, and we're speaking with Andrea C. Hummel. Andrea is the founder of Improv for Peace We'll be taking questions from our listening audience in about five minutes or so. And the call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. And another thing, we've noticed that our international audience is growing, and we would like to have our podcast guests to reflect views from around the world. If you're listening from a country other than the United States and you know heads of NGOs that we should consider having on the show, please contact us at info at NonprofitUtopia.com. So, Andrea, I was super, super impressed with the fact that you created your own model for conflict resolution. That's Improv for Peace. And I just want to get a sense for, you know, what improv has to do with social change. And and maybe it might be helpful, too, before you um, answer that question to define what improv is for people who may not know.
1: Right. So improv is abbreviation for improvisation. And generally people think of improvisation as – making up things on a spot, what you see in some of those TV shows like What's My Line, um, where people <laughs> get up and they they're asked to recreate a scenario very quickly within two minutes. Um, and I will say that improv for Peace is not that. <laughs> um, but it, it is about spontaneously recreating situations that have caused problems for us in the past and Mm why is that important? It's because when we get spontaneous, we're able to access that part of our brain that deals with problem solving. So, you know, Mm -hmm. we can sit in a room, talk all we want, and brainstorm about trying to solve organizational culture, trying to (laughs) solve the problem of who our clients are, um, how to get better funding, things like that. Um, But when we become spontaneous, it's much easier to access that. And um, so I also rely very heavily on a field called psychodrama. Now most people they mm. hear the word psychodrama and they run scared. They think, Oh, I don't want any psychodrama in my life. No, 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 enough drama. Um, so that's <laughs> so that's the reason I couldn't really see psychodrama for peace. Um, but what psych? What psychodrama does is again, it it taps into some of the other things we're trained in the world work and in the shadow work, um, and it creates in a controlled environment in a workshop space the situations that, like I said, we've had difficulties with in the past, whether it's as an organization, as an individual, or as a nation. And then in that controlled environment, we can come up with an alternate solution by reenacting that situation. And it's not about coming up with the exact lines that you said to your boss and how he or she responded and how you felt about that. It's more about themes. It's coming up with themes that you see throughout the stories of our human experience. Um, and hmm. so it becomes about reenacting not just that one person's story or that one culture's story, but because you have everyone else in the room participating as role players in this one scenario that is reenacted, everyone goes through a healing process. And so it helps us rewire our brain if we replay an incident And create a different, more healing ending. Because Mm -hmm. studies have proven that if you're if you experience a traumatic situation, the reason it's traumatic is because your brain plays it over and over and over again. And if you play it over and over, you create more neural pathways, more connections in your brain, so that if you're faced with a similar situation, obviously you're gonna go straight to that trauma. But if you're able Mm -hmm. to that, that running through the same process in your brain by introducing a new, more healing ending, then your brain has that to hold on to and it forms a new neural pathway. And that's what we call post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress. And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to create through improvisations, which, like I said, aren't really improvisations, but dramas. So I also call my work Peace Dramas (laughs) because, again, we're trying to create inner peace as well as peace within the organization or the community. And by doing that, we give people alternatives and different solutions, different ways of looking at what may have been a difficult situation in the past.
0: That is absolutely beautiful. You know, I've never heard anything quite as innovative as what you're describing. So, I definitely commend you to, you know, for doing that. And I'm just wondering too, can you walk us through? Okay, I guess you did kind of do that, kind of walk us through the process. But if you can share some examples of of an organization or a person, you know, some examples, you know, of how this model was successfully used.
1: Yeah. So um, one example would be, the one I brought up before about um, a municipal organization that had those internal communication problems. Um, and mm-hmm. so by looking at the, the difficulties they had and seeing it not as an us versus them situation, mm-hmm. but more looking at what do I have to contribute, what did I contribute to creating this kind of environment? And also, what goes on inside my head when I'm in that particular situation? What is it triggered? Is there something in my past that gets triggered by me talking to, let's say, a boss who doesn't respond to me the same way I expected? Well, it could, as an example, um, remind me of a teacher I had in middle school or of a parent Mm -hmm. who treated me the same way. And so it really has nothing to do with the situation today, the boss I'm dealing with today. And so once you unpackage that for yourself, it gives you a better understanding, and it gets you out of again the rat wheel going on round and round in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so another example would be um, a work work I did with an organization of first responders, um,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: We like to think of first responders as being those people who are just willing to drop everything and be there, who would just do anything to help us. Well, what does that do? If you do too much of that, then that can cause you to feel burned out and stressed and unable to do your work in the future. So the work I did for that organization was to help them reconnect with themselves, to look at other parts of themselves that they were suppressing because they had to be so on tap in helping uh, their victims, in helping people they were saving. And so, mm-hmm. when, if you if you're all you're expressing is that is that helper side, mm-hmm. then you mm-hmm. may be putting into shadow other parts of yourself, like being able to set boundaries. Well, what would it be important to set boundaries. Well. Because sometimes you need to be able to say no if someone asks you to to come over and, and bring a plate of lasagna and it's nine o'clock at night and you really can't do it because you're so tired. Well, <laughs> you need to be able to set boundaries. So again, what I helped that what I helped that organization do was to be able to to develop the rest of their personality, the rest of the thing, the parts of themselves that they had suppressed because they were focused only on the one goal that they were performing in their careers. And it helped them then get more in touch with themselves and be able to recharge.
0: Now, that's interesting. When you're working with groups and you're going through these exercises, is this a one-day thing or is it an engagement that stretches a little bit longer than a day.
1: Well, um, I have two ways to answer the question. One uh, is it, how do I usually work versus what do I think is a more effective
0: way to do it?
1: Obviously, that would be coming in several times. Um, I did some work for Charlottesville, Back in 2017-18, uh, and that was a six-month mm-hmm. project. And so we came in mm-hmm. once a month and um, did a, a half-day workshop and did some other community projects. That's the ideal way to work. However, um, mm-hmm. what most organizations are are, are able. To sign up for is something like a one-time half-day workshop or even a full-day workshop. There's a lot you can cover, um, and I think, as in a lot of different trainings that are out there, there needs to be some follow-up um, because it's far too easy for any mm-hmm. of us, including myself, to slip back into into maladjusted behavior. And so, if we can, if we can really help people uh, create an environment in which to help people to get at the root cause of what's going on, um, that creates more lasting change, and that takes more than just one brown bag.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And, you know, I think we mentioned before, you know, we we talked about how at the core people want to be heard, you know, that's regardless of what environment. You know, that could be family, that could be an organization, it could be in our country, and then if people are not heard, they become, you know, disruptive and even violent. And you mentioned a couple examples um, that you were working with, um, but are can you share any other examples of how municipalities can heal some of the community trauma that's going on? So, so for example, you may or may not have worked with this, you know, um, because you're you're in Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm in Chicago. And the community I'm from is, you know, mostly African-American. Um, it's a low-income area. Um, crime and violence are, you know, of peak concern, and you may or may not have had to uh, work with those issues. But how can some of the the, the methods that you employ be addressed towards, say, the trauma of, of violence or in another case where people are losing their homes you know, because of displacement, you know, that could be traumatic as well, you know. So, you know, just in a nutshell, what can, what might be used to address community trauma?
1: Right. So obviously, The type of work I do isn't going to make changes with the County Commission and the uh, State Department of Education. That's the realm of politicians and
0: activists. Mm
1: -hmm. But the healing that I do is really more in how do you deal with the emotional reality of the situation you're in, losing your home, um, Mm -hmm. having family members killed by a crime, um, being afraid of not being able to to make your rent payment the next month, things like that. Um, The the Mm -hmm. kind of community fabric issues that you're talking about. Um, And so in a situation like that, it would be very useful to get the community together. And obviously I'm not talking about 10,000 people in a room, um, but Mm -hmm. certain members of the community that choose to be there in a community forum and have an opportunity. There's, different things you could do. You could give them an opportunity to speak out and voice their feelings. Um, There's also Mm -hmm. another process uh, that allows you to talk back to uh, Mm -hmm. someone in the community and not necessarily, you know, have the mayor sitting there and you talk to the mayor. That's (laughs) not what I'm talking about. Um, What I mean again is in in creating a ritual space, a, a protected space, a container in which you can do certain things that you can't really do in the real world. Mm -hmm. So how that would work for the community you're talking about is to be able to um, set up a chair and pretend Mm -hmm. that the mayor is sitting there and personify the mayor. Sometimes we even put scarves there to represent that person or a stuffed animal or was mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, one of the groups I was working with, I really wanted to bring in tools, these plastic toys <laughs> tools to represent <laughs> um, certain people in their organization that they wanted to talk to. And um, mm-hmm. so getting back to, to the example of Chicago, then being able to stand there and say things to the supposed mayor sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm. And that's very cathartic. Now, a lot of times methods will stop right there and they say, well, you know, if you've gotten all of that out, if you've gotten it all off your chest, oh, you feel better, you can breathe now. Well, mm-hmm. the point of view of psychodrama is that's not enough because you can mm-hmm. keep doing that over and over and over again and it doesn't create resolution for you internally. It just goes uh-huh. off steam. So the next step mm-hmm. is really then being able to to develop empathy. How do you do that? By switching roles. It's what we call role. Reverse. Oh, wow. So in other words, the person who was yelling at the mayor then has mm-hmm. to sit in the chair and pretend to be mayor. <laughs> and hear all those things <laughs> said back to them and have their own emotional reaction as if they were the mayor. And then speak back to the community from that point of view mm-hmm. by the community hearing that it creates some healing for them right because it becomes an interchange it's not just a one way monologue mm-hmm. and so this role reversal is a very powerful tool and I mean I could go into other examples too mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be a for conversation
0: right But you know it, it's interesting as you were talking um, you know I you know, I, I can be pretty much an activist, too. You know, I've worked with um, some pretty interesting community activists. You know, one of the tactics that they use when people like the mayor or other elected officials is to put the empty chair up, you know, and show everybody this person did not come. And then, you know, they, they um, carry on the meeting, and then they address the empty chair <clears throat> to reinforce the fact that the person is not there. But I think your approach is interesting in that it takes a step further. You you get to address the empty chair. But it sounds to me like over time, as that conversation evolves, you get to flip, flip the script, so to speak. You, you get to play both roles, empathize. And it sounds to me like one of the future steps would be, okay, now that we understand where the other person is coming from, you know, what are the solutions? What are we going to do about it? How are we going to work together? Is that how how that works, or did I miss some steps? But it sounds no. very positive.
1: Yes, yes, so that's exactly um, what I was trying to get at. And, um, again, what comes to mind is is the municipality that I was working with. It was a two-day training. Um, that I was doing with that particular group. And on the first Mm -hmm. day, um, one of the key leaders was in attendance at the workshop. And if it was happening, oh, she's there listening to things. Mm -hmm. The second day, because it was a repeat of the same material for the rest of the group, she wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And so it became a huge problem and all kinds of assumptions were made about why she was not there. So what would have been useful in that particular situation, and I forget why we didn't do it that time around, um, would be to have her again pretend person sitting in the chair, um, and be able to say things like, "Well, why aren't you here? Why don't you care about us? You are never here." All mm-hmm. those kinds of things, and then hear back from the other side. Well, how how do you hear back from the other side if they're not there? Like I said, you do a role reversal, and hear back things like. Uh, well, what you didn't know is my kid was actually sick and I had to take him to the hospital. Oh, well, now all of a sudden that changes my experience of that person not being there. Hmm. And so if I have a greater understanding of what happened, then unless it takes the charge away from it. Now, in that particular mm-hmm. situation, it doesn't really matter, honestly, whether that was the reason. That the person wasn't there in attendance, it's just the fact that there could have been a different altering a different reason for that person not being there, or again to get back to the example of Chicago, a different reason why it's not possible mm-hmm. to to squeeze more money out of the budget for for um, subsidized housing. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a reason, and maybe if I know what the reason is it takes some of the charge away from it for me.
0: And so Mm -hmm. then it
1: becomes a very healing process, and I can begin to say, well, okay, so maybe there's a different way of looking at it. Maybe there's something I can do in the community to get the message to the mayor that we really need Mm -hmm. to have our streets repaired.
0: Yeah, I I really, really do like that approach. I think it could be groundbreaking. You know, I, I think it would take time, it's a developmental process, but you know in communities where you know there is um, you know low income and, and lack of resources, you know people do tend to feel like they're not being heard and and then when elected officials come out sometimes there's this pent up anger because they feel like they have not been heard and again I, I really like your approach and I, I do think it could be useful, you know, if not with the mayor, then definitely with, you know, local um, aldermen, you know, city council people. um, You know, I I think that could go a long way to heal some of the, um, you know, if there may be negative feelings, and, you know, and I'm not trying to, paint a picture of everything being negative even though I've not said anything positive about relationships or positive about the community. That that's that's not my um you know, that's not my goal because, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff happening. But, you know, when you go to meetings, you know, when you're talking about say a large development process, you know, where there could be some change, you know, years and years of experience have taught us to be distrustful. And years and years of experience have taught elected leaders to be careful how much information you give out because you don't want to um, make a promise you can't follow through on. And when they say that, that could be perceived as, oh, they're just, you know, working in cahoots with the developers. And, you know, they care more about the developers than, a community, and that may not be true. You, you, you know what I mean? You know, just like you said, you know, there are alternative reasons, and, and I think exercises like you just shared with us over time could help them really, really bond with the community and the community can really um, understand where they're coming from. And I, I think another example could possibly be the police, Um, You know, there's negative um, feelings, you know, both ways on the part of the police as well as the community. And we come up with all of these feel-good programs that at the end of the day don't really have lasting impact for some of the reasons you, you described because we're talking for one day and then we go out of the room and then we don't think about prolonged actions. We don't think about empathy you know, being really deliberate about empathy. So I I don't know. I I just find this really exciting. Yeah, I mean,
1: it it is exciting work. And at the same time, my hat's off to you for actually being on the ground, doing the work to the social activism work, from what I understand you. You are the one who actually Mm -hmm. has those conversations and makes sure that things happen. Um, The community change happens on the infrastructure level and Mm -hmm. so I mean you said something about feel good approaches and we're in love with feel good approaches I I totally believe that (laughs) Um, and so I'm not in favor of just a feel good approach however I'm sometimes concerned that the approach I offer is seen as oh just another feel good approach Um, so my answer to that would be I think we need both we really need people like you who are out there Uh, advocating for changing laws and changing the budget and and all of that, that really needs to be done. And while (laughs) we're waiting for the budget to be changed, we do need something to help take the pressure off of us Is feeling so stressed about those changes not happening the way we want them to and not happening as quickly as we want to. So we we need both. We need both. We We need the Uh, Let's plow through and change that budget. And we also need to, how do we take the stress off until that happens?
0: Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. Okay, I want to remind you that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, and we're speaking with Andrea C. Hummel. Andrea is the founder of Improv for Peace. We will take questions from our listening audience just as soon as you call. And you can also post in the chat room. And our number is 347-884-8121. And before we get back into our interview, I just want to tell you a little bit about Nonprofit Utopia. We are the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. We have created a safe environment in which our members can innovate speak candidly about the issues and concerns they face on a daily basis and share ideas and resources, you can visit nonprofitutopia.com as well as nonprofitutopia.mn.co for further information, and we did post links in the uh, comment section. And our mission is to provide ongoing professional development and networking opportunities in which experienced nonprofit professionals can share expertise with the next generation of ethical leaders. The overarching goal of the community is to give our members the tools they need to develop strong organizations that will make a lasting impact. Our vision is to strengthen the global nonprofit sector by providing training and development opportunities for fifty thousand emerging nonprofit leaders throughout the world by twenty thirty three and this podcast is one of the ways to do that. So Andrea, how can the improv for peace model be used to help professionals, you know, improve their leadership skills?
1: Right. So there's bits and pieces of it that people can do on their own, including nonprofit leaders. Um, And as Mm -hmm. I've mentioned several times already, one of the pieces is that role reversal that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. In other words, being willing to see things from the other side. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of these techniques don't necessarily require a huge setup and a huge training room and the, the bag of scarves and tools that I carry around with me. Um, <laughs> it's also something that you can, you can do on your own. I have a good friend who, who does these kinds of workshops in river shops. Um, in African communities, actually. And so he uses just whatever tools he can find around the barbershop, whether it's a pair of shears or a brush or something. Um, and I've done this myself even with just you know, a pair of socks or, like, stuffed animals or, or a box of cereal. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, nonprofit profit have a box of cereal sitting in their office, uh, but they could do some of these role reversals with the stapler on their desk. <laughs> um, or a cup of coffee or something. It's just something that some physical object they can reverse with. Um, so that's one technique. Another technique would be being able to just listen. Listen as mm-hmm. if you really believed what your conversational partner is saying. Um, and I used to say, talk to someone different from yourself. Now I say, listen to someone different from mm-hmm. yourself. Um, and also experiment with mirroring, in other words, mirroring the body language, um, even what we call body doubling in psychodrama. And what that means is not just imitating, not doing the caricature of someone having their arms crossed or scratching their head or whatever, but actually trying to create empathy by holding your physical body similar to that. Um, That encourages the listener to reveal more. Also, if you repeat some of the things they've said and repeat them in such a way that it really sounds like you're listening and you really believe what they say, that creates empathy too. So that will be the listening exercise. Um, Another one is sorting for similarities. This is something I've started um, advocating that people do because it's also very simple. Um, Our brains are looking for what we tell them to look for. One of my favorite quotes is, the horse will go in the direction the rider is looking. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the direction in which you're pointed is the direction you're going to go. The direction in which your brain is programmed to go, that's the way you're going to go. So if you look for similarities in your conversational partner, start noticing those similarities. And you notice them more than if you don't look for them, if you're not specifically telling yourself that you're now going to take five or ten minutes and look for those similarities. Um, and the final strategy I always like is is just looking for strangers, looking for people who are different than you. And inviting them mm-hmm. in again suspending disbelief, suspending that the fear that you may have, so if it feels better mm-hmm. to invite that person different from you in in a place where you do feel a little more safe, whether it's you know out in the park rather than in your home, okay. But the point is, you gotta stretch somewhere in building those bridges, and that applies for nonprofit leaders also. Um, being able to to talk to someone who's whether it's within your organization, who's a little different, who's, who's um, you know gets you riled up or gets you concerned, but it also applies mm-hmm. to those organizations that your organization and they have a problem with or have had a problem with in the past because they're competition or they're, they're a bigger player in the field. And um, so just being able to form those connections and have the belief that there's room for all of us in this world. And it takes some time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would be pretty boring if we had a world in which everyone <laughs> was the same. I certainly want, wouldn't want to live there.
0: Um, so those are <laughs> five simple strategies. Okay, so... Andrea, we've got three minutes left. Do you have say about five minutes extra? You know, we, we won't get a chance to talk about everything we'd hoped, but I, I did want to ask at least one or two more questions. Do you have at least five minutes over? Sure, absolutely. That you can spare? Okay. All right, awesome. Thank you. Um I think one of the, the most I guess important parts of this conversation would be some of the lessons that that you've learned over the years doing this work. Would you care to share some of the lessons that you've learned? Um.
1: Well, I'm trying to think that through. Um, you know, there's there's certainly lessons that I wish that people had told me in terms of building a business. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of what's more important to me right now are lessons that I think we all need to be aware of um, in, in the work that we're trying to do out in the world. And nonprofits, but definitely, maybe this is a stereotype, but to me, nonprofits are the ones out there really trying to make a difference. And mm-hmm. um, so the things I've learned from from working with nonprofits is that, as I said at the beginning of our time together, everyone just wants to be heard. That's just Mm -hmm. such a basic human need and and if we don't get heard or if we think that our point of view isn't important or isn't accepted, isn't socially acceptable, what's going to happen is we just get louder and louder and it creates more and more of a problem. And um, mm-hmm. unfortunately, sometimes that turns into violence. And mm-hmm. so, if we could just find a way to to create more opportunities to listen to each other, that would go a long way toward toward taking some of that pressure off. Um, one of the other things I learned is that to really make change, you can't just use words and rhetoric. I mean, that's that's it's important mm-hmm. again to to talk about the changes we want, but we also need spontaneity and improvisation in order to get a little deeper to, to the change, the solutions that we may not have come up with before. And again, you know, for example, at the moment, um, I, I'm working through a difficult um, problem in how to market my business. And so mm-hmm. not that it's related, but I do have a tent mm-hmm. set up in my living room right now <laughs> um, and so when I feel I can definitely I relate <laughs> <laughs> so I sit inside my tent and all of a sudden I start laughing. and what does that do <laughs> it creates spontaneity and then I can think through things more clearly <laughs> um, so sometimes just doing something silly really helps too um, and we <laughs> goes hand in hand in that with that is Again, you have to use your own life experiences in order to be able to to do this kind of work to make any kind of difference in the nonprofit sector. Um, and we can't just go by protocol. We also have to really connect with other people and dig deep. Have the courage to dig deep and use our own life experiences. Um, it's okay to take a take a break from from this type of work because. Yeah, a lot of us work in fields that with very difficult populations. I mean, like your work, working in the inner cities in Chicago. I mean, it's just amazing how you remain so positive um,
0: in, in <laughs> doing that work.
1: And I would it love to know what you do to take a break.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the whom you're talking and, and when. There, there are some people that view me as an anathema. There are other people who, who love me. <laughs> it it just yeah. it depends.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, and, and again, it comes down to who sees you. You know, they they see you in different ways. But um, I'm really glad you remain positive. <laughs> we have to. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and yeah, at the same, same time, easy. you know, if we need, yeah. So if we need to take a break from that type of work, I say take a break. You'll come back stronger. Um, you know, it's you can only give so much of yourself before you need a recharge. Um, and then the final thing is to always look for the helpers. Don't look Mm so much for the problems as the helpers. And um, I am just so in love with that quote by Fred Rogers. I saw his movie recently, and um, it reminded (laughs) me of of that quote. Apparently, his mother used to say to him when he was a young child, when something bad happens in the world, look for the helpers. You'll always find Mm -hmm. them there. And um, Mm -hmm. and that's become my mantra because I am... I have seen so many things happening, even in my own community recently, violence that I did not expect to see. And it was demoralizing. And at the moment I started thinking, you know, there are always people who are helping, and this is a good world. We just have to look for those people in this world who are willing to make those positive changes. And I don't know any other better way to end this interview than to say, you know, there's so many helpers out there, and I appreciate you being a helper too, Valerie.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You have no idea how comforting this conversation has been to me personally. You know, and it's so interesting. You and I, I think we we set this interview up, what, over a month ago, set the date, and I think the day that we're having this is, the perfect day. Had we had this conversation, say a week or so ago, it wouldn't be as meaningful to me personally as it is to me personally today. You know, given I'm glad to you guys through. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah, you make a difference. And, and just imagine, you know, there are other people who are listening. You know, who are running emerging organizations who are out there as community activists. You know, people don't always call in, and we didn't get any calls today. But, you know, there will be uh, some feedback, I'm sure, tomorrow and over the week. And um, I'm sure you've helped them too. This has been very helpful. And, And I thank you so much for sharing your time and your lessons learned and all that good stuff.
1: Thank you, Valerie. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, so we have come to the end of our show, and I'd like to thank Andrea C. Hummel, the founder of Improv for Peace, for being our guest. This is just her first appearance, you guys. I hope she'll come back. You know, she's got so much to share. And, Andrea, um, do you care to share any parting thoughts? Oh, and also let us know how you can be reached.
1: Um, I would just encourage people to keep reaching out to each other. And it sounds really simple and simplistic. Um, I can't make it any simpler than it is. So we keep <laughs> staying connected with the people around you. And if you want to stay connected with me, I've got a website. It's improvforpeace.com. Um, I'm also on social media. I like to post something on Facebook, uh, my today feature, just a little thing that uh, that would be useful to look at today, such as um, being able to look at yourself, being willing to pat yourself on the back, um, being willing to look at the people around you in a different way. Um, I also just started using Twitter, but don't follow me because I don't have anything up there yet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So I'd like to thank everyone for listening to to today's podcast. Um, I encourage you so much to go to iTunes and leave a review. We've included instructions in the comment section to guide you through the process. And make sure you join us next week for another lively episode of Nonprofit Utopia. You can sign up for a reminder right on this episode page. So until then, you take care. Bye-bye. Andrea, I will talk to you later and thanks again
1: Thank you so much, Valerie Bye
0: Mm -hmm. Bye Bye-bye